Hello, everyone, and welcome to our sessions on the creative economy and how young creative workers are dealing with COVID-19 at the Paris Summit 2021. I am Verena Daniel, an Australia Indonesia Center Industry Fellow and your moderator for today. The center acknowledges the traditional owners, the Colin nations of the land in Melbourne on which the AIC's head office is located. We pay our respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. Every nation loves to foster a creative economy, a community of innovative, talented, and experimental workers who help us understand the world better through their art. Indonesia's creative economy generates 7% of its GDP, but during the pandemic, events shut down and with little support from the government, many young creative workers had to pivot to survive. And then this session will explore the issues faced by the sector and strategies to better support its recovery and sustainability. So before we start, I would like to invite our keynote speaker for today. Selamat pagi, Ibu dan Bapak, teman-teman dari Australia Indonesia Center. Terima kasih atas. Good morning to my colleagues from Australia Indonesia Center. Thank you for the invitation to give some input regarding creative economy, how young creative workers are dealing with COVID-19. Sekarang, Republic of Indonesia to open day two of the Pair Summit 2021. Azimum has fostered cooperation between Indonesia education centers and there's, we've had a lot of progress. I would like to say thank you to the partnership for Australia and Asia. Australia and Asia Research Pair has given us the opportunity to open the second agenda as part of the Summit 2021 for over a year has passed since COVID-19. This is a global disaster that is not just threatening human health, but also creates uncertain uh, global economy. This, there are in all elements of society are facing the same issues in the world without exception. However, we see various cultures where we have various terms and ways to see this through culture. In Mandarin, the word crisis means crisis itself and opportunity for change. In Indonesia, we know there is a song that essentially says that the storm will pass, COVID-19 will pass, and how can we live through this, we implement health protocol, cooperate amongst agencies, not just uh, government institutions, but also with academics. For example, the way the government in Indonesia is handling COVID-19, in the two months, it has, we have seen a drop in cases. We have cooperation amongst 
institutions, including the armed forces and police, and we are listening to input, including from academics. The key is listening to all stakeholders in facing COVID-19, including the young creatives taking advantage of the situation to conduct a process of transformation. There are three issues. Uh, there are three things that the Indonesian government is doing. First of all, transformation process in the economic sector, especially in MSMEs. In this case, the Indonesian government together with digital um, industry workers are launching and onboarding more than 30 million MSMEs until 2023. And since the launch by the president on the 14th of May 2020, we have had more. 16 million MSMEs onboarding, so this is progress and this can be achieved because we are working hand in hand and helping each other. Secondly, the implementation of CHSE, Clean Health and Sustainability Environment, and this CHSE is innovation by the government in cooperation with industry and providing peace of mind and security when people are visiting to hotels or to other venues or other greater venues. They have that sense that the venue is implementing health standards, so reducing the transmission of COVID-19. And thirdly, efforts from the Indonesian government to disseminate the Panduli Lindungi application, and this application allows the government to monitor and reduce the transmission of COVID-19. I believe that this transformation has changed our lives, including individual relationship between communities and between countries. We are all under the same roof and facing this, the same challenge, and we are adapting and growing despite the threat of COVID-19. In the future, as part of a global community, we face the greater threat in our survival, such as climate change and global warming. I believe that the key to our success in facing these changes is the spirit for collaboration, working hand in hand, and sharing knowledge to find joint solutions, such as the solutions born from uh, AIC pair is an example of this relationship that provides concrete empowerment for the public. I hope that this summit will be a forum for more ideas and recommendations to overcome the various challenges policy. And we invite you from Australia to visit the five Super Priority Tourism Destination Toba, Borobudur, Mandalika, Labuan Bajo, and Kupang, I believe. If you do visit our five priority destination areas, you will have new ideas, new collaborations, and real steps in 
reviving the creative economic sector. And for Indonesia, this is the new engine. It is the new growth that we will continue to foster and develop. And the young people of Indonesia are the engine for our future. And therefore, the government has conducted has deployed various resources, including in the near future, the Indonesian government will be providing support for the effort to develop the gaming industry with the objective of fostering creativity and the spirit of nationhood. I congratulate you. Let's work together and collaborate. And the best way to do this is in Borobudur, in Labuan Bajo, in Mandalika, Danatoba, and in Kupang. Once again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Manuhuto, for opening the Pair Summit 2021 Day 2 today. So ladies and gentlemen, as I said before in the beginning, uh, we are going to have a discussion with our panelists today about our topic, creative economy, um, and the impacts of COVID-19 to the arts uh, workers in Indonesia. So uh, we are going to have a discussion and then later on we'll take questions. Uh, so then uh, if you have questions to our panelists, you are welcome to forward your questions in our Q&A box uh, in uh, the Zoom uh, provided uh, at this moment. So for now, I will now introduce our speakers who have already joined us today. Um, first speaker is Dr. Anissa Erbeta from the University of Melbourne. And then later on, we will have Dr. Oki Rahadianto Sutopo from Universitas Gajah Mada and Dr. Jema Perde from Reels Oz in Indonesia. So for now, I would like to invite our first speaker, Dr. Anissa Arbeta from the University of Melbourne. Uh, hello, uh, Anissa, apa kabar? How are you, Valerina? How are uh, you? Also ready to present your research. I understand that uh, you and your team have already done some research about the impact of COVID-19 to the art uh, workers in Indonesia, especially in uh, Yogyakarta, focusing on that main area. So for now, uh, would you please uh, inform us about your study and also why did you study uh, this part of the economy and the impact of COVID-19? Of course, um, thank you so much. Um, I would like to uh, show my presentation if that is all right with you. Yes, you may. Thank you, um, just waiting for you. That's it, that's it. Thank you so much. Um, so thank you so much everyone for attending this panel. Uh, my name is Anissa Beta. Uh, I'm joined by my uh, co-chief investigator, uh, Dr. Oki Sutopo from Universitas Gajah Mada. Uh, we are here representing our research team. We have five people actually in the team. Uh, other than the two of us, we have Dr. Ariano Tomo from uh, University of Melbourne. Dr. Novi Kurnia and Gregorio Sragili Wibawanto from Universitas Gajah Mada. Um, before I begin, uh, I would just like to acknowledge that I'm beaming to you from the land of Wurundjeri people, and I would like to uh, pay my respects to elders past, present, and becoming. And I would also like to thank the organizers and Mr. Manuhutu for opening the panel. Um, if we can move to the next slide. Thank you. So, um, as Valerina asked, um, we would like to share to, uh, to you the reasons and also sort of the scope 
of our study. Uh, we were sort of, we were really um, thankful and grateful that we were awarded uh, the rapid research grant by uh, Pair AIC. The research is interested in looking into the creative workers, meaning workers of the creative industry in Indonesia, who actively support and contribute to the development of creative economy. And as Mr. Manuhutu says, creative economy is Indonesia's new engine. And because of that fact, we would like to understand how the hit of the COVID-19 crisis have been um, responded by the young creative workers. So because of the importance of creative economy, we believe that it is at the utmost importance to understand how we as academics, as scholars, researchers, as well as stakeholders, including policymakers and government officials who are joining us here, could respond our best to help and support the young creative workers. In our research, we have three key goals. First is to examine the contextual factors that threaten the sustainability or the development of the creative economy, specifically in Yogyakarta during COVID-19. Second is to identify the responses and strategies employed by the young creative workers to navigate the socioeconomic shocks that the pandemic has brought. And lastly, to provide an evidence-based framework to help the policy community assess possible interventions to enhance creative workers' resilience in dealing with risk and crisis. Uh, next slide, please. Um, our methods, because this is a rapid research, we tried our best to be effective as possible. So the participants of the study represent six subsector of the creative economy, which includes film, dancing or dance, theater performances, music, photography, and fashion. The six subsectors, subsectors were selected because uh, theoretically, they are the uh, more conventional forms of creative industry. We understand that in Indonesia, there are actually more subsectors, including culinary, tech industry, and even tourism. But we decided to, cho to choose these six uh, subsectors because they were the ones who we believe found the most challenge during the pandemic because most of them could not produce during COVID-19 because they cannot meet each other. And most of the work that they do are usually collaborative and cannot be simply done online. What we did were we did focus group discussions with 12 creative workers. Um, they are distributed equally between the, uh, the six subsectors, including genders and also social backgrounds. And then we do in-depth interviews with 18 creative workers, some of which also participated in the focus group discussions. And we also distribute uh, equally about three from each subsectors, also equally from different social backgrounds. And lastly, we do social media screening of 23 creative workers to see how they strategize and use digital tools. Uh, next. Why Jakarta? Um, Yogyakarta is, of course, for most Indonesians, we are more familiar with it as uh, kota budaya, as kota pelajar, so cult the cultural country, uh, the cultural city, excuse me, or the student city, 
And that is the truth. Jogjakarta has such rich uh, tradition and also very lively networks of creative workers, most of whom are young. So other than that, in the creative economy, Jogjakarta is actually the biggest contributors to national income from the creative sector. And most interestingly in Jogjakarta, it has a very particular quality that my colleague Oki will talk about later, that people work together in solidarity to help each other, which characterize its creative economy in very particular ways. So the city, we believe, holds a special cultural position, not only in the local and national level, as we all know, but also as a global hub. So it therefore nurtures cosmopolitan values in creative pro products, such as music, theater, fashion, and dance, and many others. And therefore we think that the case study of Jogjakarta can be representative of other cities in Indonesia. Next. So I will start by sharing with you typical responses of uh, the creative workers during the pandemic, and then Oki will continue to rest. So the typical responses that we found from our focus, dis focus group discussions and in-depth interviews are one, shocked, which is of course very common as all of us I think did. Second is shocked, but adjusting. And lastly, staying cool. And these different responses is influenced by multiple factors, more, uh, most notably uh, from their position in the creative economy, whether they are still early career creative workers or whether they're mid-level or senior. And it also depends on the social capital that they have, as well as cultural capital and also financial capital. I might just pull up in the interest of time one example, shocked but adjusting. And in shock but adjusting, we found that one of the creative worker whose work focuses on fashion, specifically batik, although uh, he was already a mid-career creative workers, he was really shocked by the hit of COVID because uh, fashion uh, industry, especially the manufacturing, had to shut down during COVID, especially the first wave. But then he started to adjust by start selling the mask. So we found that there are very active negotiations in the process. I would like to now move to the next slide and give Dr. Oki Sutopo a chance to present as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Anissa. So uh, the next one is uh, we will talk about the types of response to the uh, pandemic. Yeah? We uh, observe that there are three types of response, namely waiting, do something, and seek assistance. Uh, so I want to underline that this is the first wave of the pandemic. So uh, the issues of social distancing and the early issues of uh, digital transformation is, is really like build the context of this uh, first wave of pandemic. So uh, the first type of response as a waiting is actually there waiting for the um, updates of the situation. It is an un unpredictable and uncertain situation. However, uh, in time that they're waiting, they're also actually strategizing. So one of the manifestation of this uh, strategy for them is what we call the do something. So there are two ways of do something for these uh, young creative workers. First is related to 
how to survive economically. The second one is how to survive artistically. Uh, so if I want, if uh, we can give an example, uh, most of these young creative workers in order to survive economically, usually they uh, shift their business into uh, selling food uh, from donuts um, and also uh, selling other frozen foods in order to survive economically. On the other hand, uh, when they are still trying to survive economically, they also remapping uh, about their future uh, in the field of cultural production. So some of them start to think how to adapt with this new situation at the first wave of the pandemic. For example, for the musician, uh, they uh, start to think about how to perform not in a one full band, but more minimalist uh, form of uh, band, for example, consists of vocalists and maybe only with keyboards, but uh, in a very strict uh, protocol, health protocol uh, suggested by the government. So, um, however, uh, in, in time that they're trying to do something and to survive economically and artistically, not all of these young creative musicians were able to survive. Uh, so some of them also start to seek assistance, uh, not only from friends, but also in terms of economy, they have to um, seek uh, some uh, subsidy, maybe from banks or maybe from family. So it shows that uh, the first wave of the pandemic uh, increase the precariousness of the young creative workers in Yogyakarta. Uh, next. So, however, um, under condition of uncertainty and precariousness, uh, young creative workers in Yogyakarta uh, remain an active and reflexive subject who were able to uh, take benefit of the uh, the interconnectedness of with their communities, yeah, with their community. So this is one of the uh, capital, yeah, we can say this is one of the capital from uh, creative sector in Yogyakarta because it's built uh, basically based on the community. So we can also say that this community is actually the safety net for this young creative worker in order for them to, to survive. So uh, the other example about the, uh, the importance of this community is actually how they also start to collaborate each other when uh, the situation is a bit better uh, at the first wave of the pandemic. So they start to collaborate uh, not only with with the same uh, creative sector, but also with other creative sector. For example, a musician had a collaboration with the photographers and also uh, had a, a collaboration with the dancers or the theater uh, workers. So uh, once again, we want to uh, underline about the uh, importance of the social network for young creative workers to uh, survive in times of pandemic. 
The other things that we want to highlight in this analysis and result is actually the issues of uh, inequality in terms of uh, digital infrastructure. So uh, under condition of the massive or rapid shift into technological uh, into technology into digital technology not all of these young creative workers uh, were able to adapt to the transformation into the digital so um, this is also an issue not only in terms of infrastructure but also an issues of um, inequality in terms of how they able to uh, master the cultural capital to survive into this uh, digital transformation. But the other interesting things that to show that their active subject is actually they help each other to uh, like, for example, to give suggestion to friends, how to, uh, you know, transform their creative works into the digital uh, performance, for example. Next. Okay, so this is the bit of updates from uh, the recent updates, yeah, since uh, maybe about one month ago uh, and several weeks ago. Oh, so many of our informants were actually, you know, we can say that they they were they were able to they are able to survive nowadays, uh, relying as we uh, suggested before, relying uh, from their. Uh, social networks, and also relying on their capacity to improvise um, in order to survive in their uh, field of cultural production. So if we see here, some musician uh, start to getting a uh, play in the kicks again with the health protocol. Uh, one of our informants, uh, dancer, uh, she collaborates uh, in a theatrical performance and the other things also, one of our uh, informants from a musician, uh, he started to make his own single yeah, song, Dangdut, uh, where it's very interesting because he was actually came from the classical music, but now he uh, uh, released his single on Dangdut. And one of our informants also just won an award uh, from Jakarta at the film festival. So that's that's also interesting. Once again, it shows the uh, uh, how they reflexive they are in dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic. Next one. Okay, despite that um, our creative, uh, our young creative workers as our informants, despite that they're able to survive, we still um, think that some of the recommendations are relevant uh, in order to give more assistance for our creative workers. Yeah. Uh, the first one, so we divided this into three different levels. The first one is at the individual level. I think uh, it is, still important to provide them with the uh, skills, yeah, access to the digital skills. The second one is also important to create a diverse and sustainable forums or collective as a meeting point. So this is not only uh, just a scattered um, collective, but actually collective that can be organized to 
uh, enhance more uh, for their collaboration uh, practice. And uh, the government can facilitate this, I think. Uh, the second one is at the ecosystem level. It still remains important to establish a digital ecosystem for creative workers. As we know, there are many festivals happening nowadays. However, we still need an integrated uh, a digital ecosystem in order to uh, give solution for this social inequality access. The next one is actually to still facilitate the subsidized digital gigs for creative workers. Not all of these creative workers have an access for gigs. So I think a redistribution of subsidy in terms of gig is also important. The next one is at the national level. We think that it is necessary to build an institutional level of analysis that can be uh, form the basis for an association for member support. And the next one, uh, as our informants uh, explained to us, they still have a dream and hopes that they can still achieve a progress to be able to play abroad. So I think we also still need to facilitate their dreams, yeah? to perform abroad in Australia maybe, or maybe in Europe and all that kind of stuff. So that's why we think that it is important to uh, make available, transparent and sustainable travel funding schemes. That's all from us. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Masoki and Danista for uh, presenting to us uh, about your research regarding the creative workers uh, in Yogyakarta, especially after the COVID-19 uh, affected all of us. Um, but uh, before we continue to our next speaker, I would like to have a follow-up questions to both of you. So uh, based on your presentations, uh, we know that uh, there has been um, more uh, rigorous um, updates from the Yogyakarta creative workers. So um, basic, uh, based on this condition, uh, so do you think, what can we do to fast forward uh, the creation of uh, the ecosystem uh, for the creative workers in Yogyakarta, especially if we want to involve, for example, more actors, not only the community, but also maybe the government and maybe the private sectors? Yeah, Anisha, you want to start first? Thank you, Masoki. Um, maybe I'll answer and Masoki can add. Um, we have very interesting discussion within the group, within our research group about this, actually. And one of the things that I think is important uh, is that the government and many other stakeholders have to support and encourage creative workers to actually organize. So uh, in Indonesia, the organization of workers or labor organization, um, unfortunately, is only a privilege of some groups. And it, they have actually garnered a lot of positive results. So if go the government and other stakeholders can encourage creative workers to start organizing and therefore having very clear sort of numbers, how many people are involved in their sectors and therefore have clear vision and mission as well as needs, right? And I think that way um, the government and the creative workers can sort of be in clearer communication on how best to support them. Masoki, um, maybe you wanna add something? Yeah, thank you. So I think it's also a point to the importance of the database 
uh, of these young creative workers. Uh, in particular, in order also to prevent if something similar happens in the future, I think the availability of the database is a good uh, solution so that what the young creative workers in Yogyakarta experienced uh, last year doesn't have to uh, repeat again in the future. I mean, like they basically, last year they basically, you know, survive relying on their friends and communities, you know, it, including to, to, uh, uh, to build their own data about their, their, their peers, yeah, about their peers. So, so I, I think in order to prevent once again, and also to enhance more the collaboration with the government, I think that that point is still, it's very important. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Manisa and Masoki for answering that question. So uh, based on your answer, so I think it's very good to have a collaboration not only between the communities, but also uh, communicating it with other partners. Uh, so uh, at this point, uh, we are very happy to be joined by other uh, prominent speaker, uh, Dr. Gemma Perde. Uh, she's the director of the Real Oz Indonesia uh, Film Festival. So uh, she maybe can explain to us more about uh, the meaningful uh, uh, opportunities to have a collaboration uh, among the uh, workers, the creative workers, and also having a collaboration between different governments uh, may support uh, the, uh, you know, the future of the creative workers in Indonesia and also in other countries, especially in this case in Australia. So uh, for that, uh, thank you, uh, Vanessa and Masoki for your presentations. And now I'm going to uh, hand over to our Next speaker, uh, Dr. Gemma. So, uh, uh, Dr. Gemma, can you explain to us uh, about your experience uh, having working with the filmmakers through the Real Oz Indonesia Sort Film Festival for the two years uh, already uh, during the pandemic now? So, uh, what do you think is the key uh, points of uh, being successful so far? Hello and good morning and good afternoon to everyone. It's um, great to be joining you. Hello, Anissa and Oki. Thank you very much for your research and um, to Valerina for, for uh, hosting our panel today. I'm also coming from the cool lands of the Kulin Nations and I wish to pay my respects to their elders past and present um, here in Melbourne. Um, just perhaps to introduce Real Ozind a little bit to the audience who may not be familiar, uh, very quickly, Real Ozind is a short film competition and festival, which is an initiative of the um, Australia Indonesia Centre, and it began in 2016 with the objective of finding a new space, I mean, it's not entirely new, but, but a little bit new, where we can have Australian and Indonesian stories shared together in the same kind of festival format um, and very much involve young creative workers, young filmmakers, emerging filmmakers, students. And from our beginnings in 2016, we have built in strength year on year. We have become um, quite well known amongst uh, filmmakers in both countries. It's a very unique festival, a binational festival. I'm not really aware of any others that involve Australia anyway. And so we, we cherish that. We think it's a great place for Australians and Indonesians to encounter each other in this very unique way. When we were established in 2016, 
ultimately our objective was to allow a live space where we have audiences obviously in real life come together to watch our festival of films together that is Australian and Indonesian stories alongside each other and that's exactly what we did um, for four years our model is very much based on a kind of grassroots um, level kind of working with partners in country, in Indonesia and in Australia to deliver our pop-up festival. So in that way, we were very much engaged and continue to be very much engaged with partners who are largely educational partners, um, universities and schools, but also film societies, um, yayasan, that kind of thing. And indeed, any individual who uh, feels the desire to get involved and to share uh, the experience of, of viewing these films and our festival together. And that has been a really fabulous model. Obviously, the pandemic interrupted that. And in 2020, we were unable to um, do a uh, real life, as it were, have real life audiences for our festival. Um, but this is where I think Oki and Anissa's research is very interesting and, and runs alongside our experience as a festival very well in that it bears out um, some of the challenges, but also a lot of the resilience um, within the uh, film creative sector, I think, and particularly, I mean, in both Australia and Indonesia, um, we saw that this took place. So in 2020, when we now made our decision that we would clearly need to be online 100%, fortunately, our model that we had adopted back in 2016 um, meant that this pivot was, was not too dramatic. We already had a platform to host our festival online. We had been doing that from day one and all of our submissions, et cetera, uh, run that way, which is very common, obviously, for, for film festivals to do that. So technology was already there. Um, in, in Indonesia and in Australia, we had seen this run quite seamlessly since the beginning. Um, and indeed, Indonesians always dominated in our submissions. They were always uh, the highest number out of the two countries. And in 2020, this continued pretty much unimpacted. We, we did foresee that we would need to make some changes. So we altered our eligibility requirements so that filmmakers could submit a film which they had made maybe in the last year or two years. So previously it had to be in the, in the um, 12 months preceding our festival, but we extended that period so that filmmakers may have had work um, pre-pandemic that they wanted to share and so we were open to that. The consequence of, of all this was that whilst we saw a small dip in our submissions numbers from both countries, um, as we were both, as you know, experiencing restrictions, which made all, all activity, including creating film, difficult. Um, we also saw a shift and an innovation in the types of films that filmmakers were producing. Um, so, you know, you can imagine there, was, uh, there were difficulties and challenges in having large gatherings, so, you know, film sets, et cetera, in that, in that way were more limited. And so we saw a lot of film coming through, and I think this was the case across festivals around the world, where filmmakers were innovating, where you had actors 
you know, essentially performing via Zoom and creating their work that way. We also saw, you know, a huge amount of animation coming through. Um, you know, that, that's not surprising either. And then in terms of the thematic kind of um, uh, tendency, uh, we saw obviously a lot of reflection on themes like isolation um, and dislocation and that kind of thing. And so we, you know, it was really actually a beautiful um, coming together of creativity. And what we love at, at Real Ozind is that you see it, see Australians and Indonesians, you know, this is a forum where you can see so many shared values, so many shared challenges and, you know, a real humanity that always comes out through the storytelling. So that, that was 2020 and, and our festival, you know, we held it 100% online. In a way, there are pros and cons here. And I, and I you know, draw from Oki and Anissa's research, which, you know, clearly indicates that whilst the digital platform and internet accessibility perhaps is um, probably most useful for, for film makers in terms of the creative art, because, you know, this is, this is what they're using all the time. But there's also limitations around access, particularly for, for Indonesian film. Um, so I'll say a little bit about what I, you know, might, might come to in terms of recommendations about how a festival like ours might be able to, to um, you know, do more in that space in terms of uh, providing or assisting in um, breaching that divide, that bridge, that breach between um, accessibility. So 2021 came round and obviously, again, it looked difficult for, for festivals and indeed it was. I mean, around the world, some festivals did go ahead, but it was a decision we made to, again, hold our festival online. But this year, uh, you know, there was a difference. And, I mean, there may be various factors in terms of, you know, the levels of restrictions that people were living under. But as Oki and Anissa have said, and as um, the minister said earlier, it is about adaptability and people really kind of learning to live alongside COVID safety protocols and to perform their work in new and different ways and indeed to find a level of creativity out of the challenges that they were living in, which was quite extraordinary. So interestingly, in 2021, our festival had the highest number of submissions that we've ever had, and that's across the board, Indonesia and Australia. Um, our film, uh, sorry, our theme, which we have each year a new theme, our theme was Konexi. So I think that that was a, you know, perhaps a stimulation too for, for creatives to think um, about what they might pro provide and produce for, for our festival. Um, so, again, you know, I also, you know, have to look at, well, what will we missing? Yeah, so, you know, whilst we can say that the festival produced wonderful, you know, output in terms and outcomes in terms of its engagement with filmmakers, what was, what were we missing? Well, clearly for two years, we have not been able to connect with real, with audiences in real life. And that is something that we really, really desire to do again, because that is kind of the core of what we're doing, um, which is to get, get audiences together to experience a festival. It's, you know, a pretty unique, intangible sometimes experience um, that you have when you watch a film together in a, that collective way. It's very much about forming a community um, 
We can do that digitally and we have been doing that, but there, you know, it doesn't kind of replace the experience of being in, in the same place at the same time, watching the same stories. So we're hoping that, you know, we definitely will be doing that next year. So we noticed that that has been missing. The other thing that's missing is we therefore did not have that very close connection with our partners, our host organisations that I mentioned to you, a lot of them in education, but also film studies organisations, community groups. And, you know, they're really in touch too with filmmakers on the ground. So we need to regain that those kinds of connections. And I guess that's where when I reflect on Anissa's and Oki's findings and, you know, in particular their recommendations about what might be able to be possible um, in, you know, in terms of a festival like ours, what can, how can we create more opportunity for, uh, for creatives and uh, enable them really is, is part of it. We, we have created an opportunity, but how do we assist to enable that? Um, again, this is, you know, there's a lot of issues around funding and all those sorts of things. But, you know, one thing that we would love to see for our festival, it's kind of a next generation really for us, would be to provide some kind of um, script development funding, okay, so that it allows even before the project is, has commenced we are involved in that and we can provide some financial assistance for that. That, that is one wonderful thing that could be done. Um, the other thing is more organisational and network and in terms of networks, which Anissa and Oki also mentioned. Um, we have a great network. Our host organisations themselves are very much often a hub for the communities that they support, so the filmmakers and the film lovers communities. And in a lot of cases, particularly when we think about educational organisations, they also are owners of the very infrastructure that we're talking about is in, you know, is in uh, demand here, the digital access, the internet infrastructure, et cetera. So if there was some way that Realozin as a festival can work together with our partners, um, particularly in Indonesia, to provide opportunity and enable our emerging filmmakers who are involved with our festival to access, uh, you know, to upload their films, to, to edit their films using um, the infrastructure that is there um, in, in those various places in Indonesia. So, you know, they're, they're things that, you know, I'm really hoping that we can progress. Um, but, yeah, absolutely happy to answer any questions about the festival. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Jema, for explaining about real Aussie uh, experience during the pandemic. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I would also like to invite all of you to put your questions on the Q&A box provided to ask questions to our panel, uh, our panelists today. So, uh, before we um, read uh, questions from the audience, I would like to have a question, a uh, follow-up question to Dr. Jema about real Aussie experience. Uh, so, based on your experience. Um, or do, uh, like for example, uh, which one do you think is the most uh, important for uh, real Aussie uh, festivals to be able to, to survive? Uh, the community support or the government support? Uh, because as we already know from uh, the experience from the Dr. Karna Creative Workers, uh, they have more support from the community instead of other actors. So can you please uh, tell us about that? Yeah, well, um so far, I mean, Real Ozend is very much, and this is something that, you know, I'm always amazed by every year, is um, as Oki and Anissa have, you know, explained, 
in very good terms, creative workers are very, very resourceful. And I think, I mean, I'm generalizing and I'm probably prejudiced, but I think Indonesian creative workers are extremely good at it. I mean, I'm sure Aussies are too, for sure. But um, it's this level of connection and community and support that they have in, you know, the way they exchange and share resources is, is quite extraordinary. So for our festival, um, obviously we could not operate without you know, kind of seed funding that we have in order to provide our, um, you know, prizes and, and to actually resource it. But we do it in a very light way. And as I explained, our model is very much dependent actually on that community that uh, Oki and Anissa have talked about very much. And in some ways, I'm reluctant to want to flip it and to, you know, kind of put the emphasis on governments. And we haven't ever really wanted to do that at Real Ozzy because in order to be sustainable, I think, as a festival, you need to find other ways because government funding comes and goes. We all know it. And so, you know, we don't want to be 100% reliant upon it. So this is where I think that, you know, you can talk about people-to-people links or whatever, but in the Australia-Indonesia space, um, I think that, you know, this is really working for Real Ozzy of course, as I mentioned, there are lovely things that I would, you know, be really happy to find funding to support, you know, in, in the form of that, you know, that really need money. Um, and that includes something like this seed funding for, for young filmmakers, for example, that kind of thing. That's not a lot of money, though. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a combination of continuing to build what we, on what we have and if we can try and find the extra support, of course, absolutely. That's what we'll try to do. Okay, thank you uh, for answering that question. So we're still waiting for the uh, questions from the audience, but in the meantime, I would like to uh, invite uh, Anissa and uh, Oki to our uh, panel. So uh, listening to Dr. Gemma's explanations about the roles, uh, not only the government, but mostly the community support. So uh, based on that answer, uh, both of you maybe can answer this question. So uh, which one, I mean, which uh, strategy that may be more, more suitable for uh, Indonesia's condition? Uh, Mas Oki, you can go first, please. Okay, uh, thank you, Kalarina, uh, and also Anissa, and also uh, Jema for the uh, very interesting uh, point of view about the, uh, uh, communities and all that kind of stuff. So, well, I guess, uh, once again, we want to uh, underline that uh, communities is is very crucial uh, as a safety net, if we, if we can say that, yeah. Uh, not only in the creative sectors in Yogyakarta, but also at the in everyday life in Yogyakarta. Um, so, I guess it's, we need to, um, to keep this, this, this spirit of, of community and the sense of networking, uh, not only amongst them, but also the intra-generation networking of uh, creative workers. Yeah, uh, I think we need to maintain that it keeps uh, going uh, and it's keep uh, sustainable. Um, on the other hand, I, I guess uh, 
community and also what we we also sort suggest about the collectives uh, is is also important in terms of to keep their freedom of expression of creating uh, an artwork or any you know creative works i think that's that's also an important point of why they are into this creative uh, sector right they want to you know express their freedom they want to maybe criticize uh, something that they think it's not correct yeah in their everyday life so i guess um, young people young creative workers Jogjakarta, indonesia uh, artists and all that kind of stuff have that sense of uh, critical yeah, a sense of critics. And I think it's it's very important to, to, to point and to sustain that intragenerational. That's that's for me, I guess. Anissa, you wanna continue? Sure. Uh, thank you, Mas Oki. And really thank you, Gemma, for uh, mentioning the uh, Indonesia community, very strong support with one another, especially among peers. And um, perhaps the emphasis as well, when we think about um, which one is, uh, we should prioritize first. Of course, I think with Indonesia's condition, it's far more realistic to expect community support to work and actually function. But this doesn't mean that uh, the government could, you know, um, not do anything or not uh, enhance further uh, the support that they already have. So, as some of you uh, in uh, who who is who are attending this panel might know, that there are some support, bantuan incentive, bantuan infrastructure, so infrastructural and um, some smaller help to support the creative workers. But uh, we suppose that you know, so that to mirror and to learn from the community support, what creative workers need is not. It's not temporary or short type of funding, but rather a meaningful, sustainable, long-term support that could make them feel acknowledged, not just for the thing that the things that they generate, but actually the process of creativity and the future of creative industry. Because you know, as more formal stakeholders would have the facility to access structural support, they also need to think about what type of long-term infrastructures, long-term sustainable support that would be appreciated by communities of creative workers that are really meaningful for them, that are not gimmicky, that are not you know, uh, competitive, but rather really wholesome and comprehensive. So perhaps that answered your question, Valerina. Thank you. Okay, thank you, uh, Manisa and Masoki, for answering that question. So um, we still have time to uh, discuss more uh, about this. But um, what I'm interested in is, um, so what do you think is the best solution that you can suggest to the uh, to our community in Indonesia uh, in order to survive, for example, maybe for the next 12 months? So maybe um, who wants to answer that question? Maybe maybe Dr. Gemma uh, can also give your uh, point of view about this because I don't know. Um, maybe you have another um, suggestions regarding the situation in Indonesia. Happy for Oki to answer first. I see that he off his microphone and then I can follow. Okay, okay. So uh, Oki then. <laughs> well, I guess. Uh... For the next 12 months, it is important to keep the uh, the collectives alive and develop more 
uh, you know, uh, so that I guess uh, it can, uh, what, what's the word, menjaga, uh, it can, it can keeps, yeah, it can keep, keep the, the, the spirit of this young people to, to, to stay in this creative sector, yeah, because I mean, like, this is very precarious economically for them, and they also want to have a better future, you know, you know what I'm saying, like about life and all that kind of stuff. So I guess uh, to facilitate, you know, the the more collectives that more plural, more sustainable for young people, at least it gives them spaces. You know, it, it gives them space to, okay, there is, there is some, there are friends, there are people that are similar like us, like me, and want to, you know, be a creative workers and all that kind of stuff. So they have that kind of support. I think that's what we need. Yeah, in uh, in my opinion, in in this uncertain condition, yeah, to, to keep that in the future, uh, young creative workers are, are still um, a sector that young people wants to be. You know, in in the future. Yeah. So that's that's from me. Thank you. Okay. So before I hand over to Dr. Gemma, uh, I would like to maybe have Anissa answer this question. There is a question coming from Hikmatun Ima uh, from PKBI NTB. Uh, so the question is, what is the most challenges uh, of improving creative workers during the COVID-19? Is there any suggestions for each creative workers to face on economic problems uh, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic? So maybe if you can uh, respond to this whether there is going to be maybe a different between you know the 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 strategy in Yogyakarta or maybe in Entebbe for example or maybe it's just the same maybe you can also answer that Anissa. Thank you. Um, thank you for the question that's excellent and of course as we emphasize different cities would have different situation but Yogyakarta would be representative because of its particularities. And of course, um, the problems of each individuals in each city would be different. And we that's why we think that we don't want to go back to the individual solution because individualized solution would then rely on their social capital, financial capital, cultural capital, and so on. And that would be unfair, especially for young creative workers who are still struggling, who are only starting their career. And that's why we thought that it was important to highlight young creative workers just precisely because their position reflect best on the precarity of the of the industry really so to answer your question very briefly i'm mindful of the time is to make sure that local uh, networks would work for the creative workers so the communities of the creative workers should be healthy and functioning but also to make sure that local governments uh the government at large is aware that there is a problem and there are different types of inequalities and the inequalities cannot be treated uh, the same or universally. Um, Gemma, maybe over to you. I think just a final comment, which is really just to, on the back of Oki's comment. I think it is also that, you know, at this time, it is too very important that we continue to find ways to celebrate the work of, that we're speaking of, um, to find spaces um, where we can all access and value um, what these people are doing. So that, as Oki said, they're encouraged to continue in, in this space um, as, you know, even despite the challenges. And so festivals like ours, but many, many, many more, and that includes all levels of government and it includes, you know, initiatives from all sectors of society. 
Yes, okay. So uh, thank you very much uh, to uh, the three of you for uh, being a great panelist for today. Um, so because we are running out of time, but uh, but we're very happy uh, to hear from all of you today and answering the questions from the audience as well. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've heard from our speakers that uh, young creative workers have already survived the pandemic for the past two years. And uh, community support uh, basically plays uh, the most important thing, uh, role during the pandemic. But uh, in the future, we're hoping that more stakeholders, especially the government, can also help uh, in for uh, help for the creative workers to be more productive in the future. Uh, in Indonesia's case, uh, at this moment, is we really hope that we can build more uh, digital ecosystem, so then the creative workers in the future can produce more uh, creative uh, art. Uh, products uh, efficiently. And so therefore, uh, we would like to conclude the first session of today. So thank you very much again to Anissa Erbeta, Okira Dianto Sutopo, and Gemma Freddy for being our speakers today. Ladies and gentlemen, now we will have a short break before uh, meeting our next panelist. Uh, please stretch your legs or get a cup of coffee or tea or some water and join us again later on uh, in 10 minutes. Thank you. Welcome to our session on the forgotten victims tackling COVID-19's impact on people with disability. I am Valerina Daniel, an Australian Indonesia Center Industry Fellow and your moderator for today. The pandemic has had a significant impact on people with disability. We have lost income, social isolation, and many struggling with a lack of accessible health information and education opportunities. The report that we are going to discuss outlines the experiences of people with disability during the pandemic and how they must be better included in policymaking and support systems. We will take your questions in the Q&A box uh, on your screen later on. But for now, I would like to invite our panelists uh, to present their research findings. The first panelist is Professor Becky Batago, COVID-19 Research Co-Lead Monash University. And then Dr. Muhammad Junaid, COVID-19 Research Co-Lead, Universitas Hasanuddin. And Dr. Ishaq Salim, Co-Founder, Indonesian Disability Movement for Equality or PERDI. The speakers can now start their presentation. Okay, it's my turn. Ah, oh, yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Kami akan presentasi bertiga dan saya akan menggunakan bahasa Indonesia. will be presenting. I'll be speaking in Bahasa Indonesia. My presentation is about the reasons. First of all, why the we are doing this research on COVID, why we are responding to this pandemic. Secondly, how and why we are conducting this research. Perdik, and this is the founder and member of the network, the network of Organization for People with Disability, or OPD, 
and we feel that the people with disability in Niger are the biggest minority. We have we are eight point six percent or twenty to thirty million people with this large proportion. The people with disability should garner attention from the government and from the greater public in this pandemic response. Secondly, it appeared that at the beginning of COVID last year, people with disability were not a priority in the emergency response program conducted by the government. The information media disseminated by the government did not provide access to people with disability, especially for uh, the blind, uh, the deaf. Uh, there's no sign language or those with dyslexia. And the information was presented um, full of text. So it was very difficult for people with dyslexia to access the information. The third reason we are responding to this is because we feel many OPDs organization, people with disabilities, Niger from Sumatra to Papua, uh, we have uh, the ability to respond as the government does with a specific, in a specific capacity, and we are able to cooperate we are highlighting that people with disability can contribute. There are a lot of organizations with disability that were fundraising, distributing assistance, providing information for fellow people with disabilities. How and why people with disability or we have done this research. At this moment, we have had two surveys. The first survey was in March, actually in June of 2020, and in the beginning of 2021, prior to this research, we did conduct a massive consolidation with OPDs across different regions because it was quite easy to consolidate. It was easy to meet with people with disability through online forums. So the physical barriers that were experienced by people with disability disappeared and it was very easy for people to converse and to exchange information. After we consolidated, we sought support from various parties, NGOs, and AIPG, Makota, CBM, and others who are development aid agencies, especially from Australia. We had strong support when we began to plan actions such as research. We also developed cooperation with various parties, including experts from universities, especially in analyzing our survey findings, we reached 
all provinces with different disabilities with the support of our colleagues in the different regions so despite the fact that the survey was conducted online we were very much aware that in many many areas that people disabled did not have online access they didn't have the android gadgets internet connection and even if they did have a phone they might not have the phone units um for that or quota so we had people to visit them and to interview them in person, then input that research into a Google Drive. Our findings in the survey, first of all, was that, that the COVID information system could not be accessed and is often not representative. It's not adaptive. So in the COVID context, people with disability were left behind in access information. It is important to be aware of the diversity of people with disability in accessing and reading information. This is influenced by the uh, aid tools they had, the level of education and other factors. Therefore, we felt that it was necessary that the information system developed by the government, both at the national level and subnational level, should coordinate with organizations of people with disabilities at the regional level. Other findings is that people with disabilities are vulnerable in the aspect of comorbidities. So not all of them, they still have accompanying illnesses. Some have new illnesses, perennial diseases uh, or illnesses. And this is something that no attention is being paid to. There's social barriers for them, which is clear because they have a diminished social role, but most terrifying, and this was discussed in the beginning, is the informal economic consequences whereby whereby many are working in the informal sector so that's the most tangible impact loss of daily income those in the formal sector have their monthly income but it's those with daily income who've felt this impact most tangibly and how they are able to cope we can hear the presentation from uh, South Sulawesi on that. And in the education sector, and learning from home means that students with disability experiences a lot of difficulties, a lot of functions that uh, can only be done in schools with uh, teacher, teacher aides, they don't know how um, at home they don't know how to help students with autism and down syndrome that doesn't exist at home so they started getting bored and in fact some lost their will to study and this is a dire consequence if the government does not change the learning system the working learning from home without access for people with disability this will result in reluctance from these children and they lose their, there's potential for them to lose their capability to uh, reach any sort of uh, prosperity or welfare. And we are thinking about how to follow up this result. We do have recommendations, um, um, both general and specific. And 
And we are consolidating and we have an OPD to respond to COVID. And this was discussed in each region. And these discussions about the role of people with disability during the pandemic has become crucial. And this is very, um, uh, this revives these different, revitalizes the groups. And we've seen the emergence of activists at the national level and voicing their aspirations. We have joint uh, action plans and we are reflecting on what we are doing, whether what we're doing is right or, or not. And at the Perdic level, based on this research findings, we then open different efforts for fundraising and donations to reach those who are elderly, dis people with disabilities and who are vulnerable. So they are actually the most vulnerable, vulnerable group amongst the, the vulnerable. And in Burdik, we have done this and we have had broad support from various parties, even from Australia, where the Indonesian Students Association contributed to channel the support for staple, uh, staples um, and masks. And post, uh, after the second survey, we read that there are many organizations and campuses that are conducting research on people with disabilities and COVID. And we wish to gather and to present the research findings. We believe that the research findings, even with uh, advocacy for change and a number of organ research organizations are only able to issue recommendations, but they cannot or they do not have the capability to continue to the stage of advocating for policy change. And Perdik is one of the founders of this network. We are endeavoring to have a joint presentation. And right now we have the support of Mahkota, the COVID-19 response network. And I, I, AIPG will have this joint presentation in pair and where UNHAS researchers are doing mesoscale research in South Sulawesi will be presenting these findings and we will develop joint action plan. So that's all from me. Thank you. Thank you, Pak for explaining to us the reason for the project and the rapid assessment and how the interview data was collected inclusively for the project. Now I would like to invite Ibu Becky to speak on the key findings and the recommendations. Thank you, Valerina, and thank you, Pakishak, and the involvement of Padik in this project has been instrumental and at the heart of the research. I wanted to start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations on whose land I am in in Melbourne, and also the Makassan people of Makassar, and recognise that this research project is part of hundreds of years of collaboration between Australian and the people of Makassar. So I'm going to talk about the focus of the study. And since Parkishak has talked about some of our key findings, I thought I would 
give some voice to them by, by providing some of the quotes of some of the informants for our research who are people with a disability in Makassar. Our project, of course, concentrates on the lived experience of people with a disability in facing the pandemic. It's really important to go beyond statistics and hear the voices of those women, men who have a disability uh, and to hear their experiences of the pandemic. Our study deliberately, ejected, so, so, uh, deliberately adopted a gender lens, which means we looked at the different experiences of the two primary genders to understand how the pandemic may affect men and women, girls and boys dif differently when they have a disability. So we conducted, um, as Pak Ishak explained, we did 36 interviews um, per DIC, uh, enabled that with, with participants living with a disability, 16 with women and 20 with men. We spoke to people in three sites in South Sulawesi, one urban, one peri-urban and one rural. Together, these sites paint a really clear and holistic picture of life in 2020 in the pandemic. We also interviewed 51 stakeholders, a mixture of representatives from provincial or city districts, social officers, health officers, the development planning agency, as well as with gender and disability NGOs. Pak Ishak described informants telling us about inaccessible information about the virus. I want to give one example from Ahmad, a male with low vision, who described how the, what this meant for him. He said, COVID information has many news portals for access to information. Some local government websites were inaccessible since the screen readers don't read the graphic information shown on the site. And for many people with a disability that had life-threatening consequences, they could not access essential health, safety, and also financial information. For some, the move to online learning, as Pakishak has said, created numerous new barriers for students. I want to give you the example of Anissa, a woman who was hard of hearing who was at university at the time. She said, when I Zoom in online classes, I have trouble hearing. So I have to be very focused, much harder than in person. Because I'm hard of hearing, it's difficult for me to understand what the lecturer said, especially when the lecturer explained it quickly. Unemployment or precarious employment for casual workers was heightened during the pandemic for people living with a disability. So Fadlan, um, a man who was deaf said, during the pandemic, we're obliged to wear a mask. It's such a constraint to me because it hinders me to read the lip movements and communicate with the customer. They have difficulties in understanding my needs to read their lip movement, whilst not everybody wants to take off their masks to speak to me. And Fadlan was talking about his work as a waiter in a cafe. As I said, we're adopting a gender lens and COVID introduced new physical and financial obstacles to accessing basic necessities, especially impacting on disabled women and their families. For example, reduced access to healthcare, fear reduced access to necessary healthcare, including reproductive healthcare 
for disabled women. So for example, Mural, a woman, a former leper said, I'm afraid to go to the public health center. That day, a person without symptoms entered and was immediately picked up by nurses in full clothes and with an ambulance. At the time, I was afraid to go. But importantly, there were many innovative and dynamic strategies developed by people with a disability to address the challenges they faced. People with a disability were creative and, um, and, and smart in the way that they responded to the limitations of the pandemic. They include enhanced communication strategies and supporting others with a disability. We also noted that disabled persons organisations were extremely good in responding to the pandemic. Pak Ishak highlighted some of our key recommendations, including more accessible communication methods, provision of basic food foodstuffs, food, and targeted government, government subsidies, which directly affect the home lives of women and people with a disability. We also recommended collection of comprehensive data on people with a disability. More support for disabled persons organisations. Greater training opportunities for, for those who work in disabled persons organisations. And that the work of the National Agency for Disaster Countermeasure should specifically include people with a disability and women with a disability in planning their policy. Some of these recommendations cost money, but many do not, including clearer and more disabled friendly communication methods. Now I'll hand over to my colleague, Mohammed Junaid. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Becky. I will continue my slide, but uh, normally I will slide uh, my slide within Bahasa and then I will deliver my talk within Bahasa as well. Uh, can I share the screen? And uh, yeah, uh, apa yang kami dapatkan dari pembelajaran? What we have, uh, these are the lessons learned from uh, in overcoming COVID amongst uh, people with disability. Collaboration is key to everything because, as explained by Pa Ishak, that the most vulnerable amongst the most the vulnerable groups, the people with disabilities are the most vulnerable. They need a lot of support, and this cannot be done individually. Cooperation is key in overcoming this issue. Pradik, in this case, has worked very well by collecting data. They are able to identify in relevant informants with regard to the projects um, implemented for us, the University of Hassanuddin and the Center for uh, Excellence of uh, Science Sustainability. And we are part of that. And we have a senior, our seniors supporting this research. In addition, we have our partner, Monash University, in this case, Becky, and we have Melbourne Uni, and we have Claire, we have PhD student Rafaela, who are working very well to develop a good collaboration in helping uh, people with disability in South Sulawesi. What we have attained from this is, first of all, we have been successful in publishing 
relevant information in the compensation Nisha. You can click on the link. Um, this was published a few months ago, and we are also publishing several articles in internationally, and we are working on that before we get to the stage of publication, there are many challenges and and there's a writing the proposal and writing the report. And we always coordinate with Becky, with Claire, and with um, translators or junior researchers from uh, CEISS. And the University of Hassanuddin now has changed to an inclusive university. We are disabled friendly. We have supporting facilities such as buildings that can be accessed by people with disability. Um, we have shelters for catching uh, the bus. There's a division. And we also need special skills in translating. And Burdick has expressed this in a report and publication. And this includes issues with using masks, for example, people with disabilities who have visual limitation will, uh, and verbal issues will find this hard. And there's also anxiousness uh, in being infected by COVID-19. This is normal. And this is a challenge in collecting data in reporting, for example, and understanding language because there are different languages, because um, there are must they are linked in Goa, Bulukumba, and Makassar are different ethnicities, so they're very diverse. There are different languages. And to formulate this in a form in a publication needs special skills. And finally, We have this team, we have Becky, we have Claire, Basudi. Basudi is a senior researcher from UNHAS together with us as the head of the Center of Science Sustainability. We have junior researchers such as June. Rafaela is a PhD student in criminology from Melbourne Uni. We have Chacha, junior researcher at the center of UNHASIS uh, Chase, uh, CEISS. We have Fika and Manda, who are junior researchers. Sharif is um, part of the Perdik movement. And so this collaborative movement has um, generated big uh, works and we have been able to published in the conversation in Indonesia. And of course, this will be uh, an effort for mainstreaming and bringing about uh, equality for people with disability and can be a strong recommendation for the government to take relevant action for people with disability. And finally, 
we are very appreciative of our partner, Claire from Melbourne Uni, Becky Batagal from Monash University, and Rafaela, PhD student from Melbourne Uni, Pak Isak from Perdik, Sharif, Pak Sharif from Perdik, Manda, Fika, Chacha, Ulil. This is a great cooperation and collaboration for us to continue in the future. Thank you. I'll hand over back to our moderator. So, ladies and gentlemen, now I would like to invite you to ask questions to our panelists. Please uh, forward your questions uh, at the Q&A box uh, or Q&A uh, chat provided in the Zoom. Uh, so, before uh, we have the question at the moment, I would like to have a couple of questions to all the speakers. But first, I would like to ask Pat Ishak, based on experience, uh, we know that the Fabulous community works more on informal sector. Um, and therefore, after this research, um, how do you find the data uh, available about people with disability? For example, um, how much is known about uh, their numbers, uh, requirements, and the choices that they can and can't make from themselves? Uh, Perhaps you can explain after you did the research, there's a lot of people with disability working in the informal sector. So we can, what can we expect from this concept of, for example, from data. Do you think there's enough data to understand their numbers, what is what they need, and how we can help them in the future? Based on data, census-based data is not available, but there is aggregated data. And on, based on the research done by our colleagues through support from uh, development aid agencies as recently done by the compilation by Sahati, uh, Pardik, Garamin, and TT, and NTD and Sleman has found that qualitatively, uh, friends in the disability work in the informal sector are indeed facing pressure and uh, changing in transaction system. But on the other hand, there are several business practitioners who are, um, who have gained advantage from the changing transaction system from physical to online. So these business people with disability who are taking advantage of the digital media has gained a lot of advantage from this process. Certain businesses, for example, uh, tailors has uh, seen a great demand for masks and personal protection equipment, but quantitative data as to the numbers. For us in Pardik, we are not familiar with this data because the government usually prepares the aggregate data. If I want to know the number of business practitioners with disability in South Sulawesi or in Makassar specifically, that would be difficult. Information about who and what businesses there can only be obtained if we meet or if we have discussion with 
OPDs uh, in Makassar. For example, if we want to know number of deaf people working in uh, or the sector uh, who are providing the sector uh, service in the sector, or we can obtain data from Perhati uh, and Bertuni, uh, HWI, and, and the different organization people with disabilities OPDs. And based on the advocacy that we are doing in Perdik, there are positive uh, issues. For example, the city government have prepared, uh, completed the action plan for people with disabilities, which is a derivative of the government regulation number 7019 and the national action plan for people with disabilities. They are the first to prepare this regional action plan. And most importantly, this is following up the importance of disability service units in um, labor and, and entrepreneurship, including providing access. And there does need to be a profile assessment uh, in a number of business, informal business categories conducted by people with disabilities. Very well, thank you, Paisa. The uh, importance of having a, a real data on the uh, for implementing the uh, plans or the regulation that have been decided by the local governments. Um, and now I'm going to go to Ibu Beki uh, because you already uh, mentioned about uh, improving our, our communication methods. So uh, what I would like to ask is, uh, uh, what do you think is the best way to improve communication uh, channels or methods for the FABO uh, community? Uh, and how can a government do this so that it is included as part of their campaigns in the future? I think um, that national disaster policy must, we must start with national disaster policy, but national disaster policy, because we know inequality grows during times of a pandemic and any disaster. So I think some of the changes that could be done are very simple, which is that every website uses disability accessible text, which can be easily scanned into a, um, into a using an app. Um, but also I think today I want to acknowledge that we have both translation and sign language interpretation and that's a great example. And thank you to the interpreters and translators here today. That's a great example of important messages on television being broadcast with a sign language interpreter. I think also it's a matter of public awareness around how difficult mask wearing is for those who are deaf or hard of hearing. Okay, thank you for answering that question. So I think it is very challenging yeah, for the federal community to understand people while they're wearing masks. So uh, now to Pat June. So, um, you know, uh, regarding this condition, uh, based on uh, predict, um, 
activity so far. Um, how essential was that to the research in terms of finding people to talk to, enabling an understand of the challenges? Pak Jun, tadi berdasarkan penjelasan dari Ibu Becky, susah sekali. Ibu Becky's explanation is very difficult for people with disability to understand people when they're speaking wearing a mask. So, in your opinion, or based on your findings in the field when you were doing this research, what challenges are you finding? when engaging them in speaking and communicating so that research can be more, more easily implemented in the future. Thank you, Valerina. So the challenge in the future. So based on what we've seen in the field and as we've expressed in our research, there needs to be a change in the understanding and the mindset in the public and this needs to start with the community groups and it can be mainstream with the government in this case, especially in addressing the needs of people with disability in the community. Of course, this is not easy. It is not easy because changing mindset, mindsets does need, does need time to achieve, but if we can remain consistent and appreciate what Becky and uh, Salim said, there are practical ways to appreciate and recognize people with disability and place them in the public space. I believe the limitations can be overcome through uh, equality in the community, uh, in society. Thank you, Bajun. We are still waiting for questions from our audience. Uh, for your questions to our panelists and write it on the Q&A box provided. So uh, next, I'm going to go back to uh, Pa Ishaq uh, because uh, you already know that the, uh, the research uh, has already recommended some uh, solutions uh, to involve the developed community to be included in the policy making policy. Uh, what do you think, um, or maybe uh, how can we, for example, improve uh, gender uh, perspective in that policy making uh, process? As we know, there are recommendations and how do we include all components of the disabled community to be part of policy decision-making, especially for women. How do you think this can be done better in the future? I believe disability is an issue that is related to other issues. For example, when it intersects with gender issues, where in gender issues, women are a vulnerable group and women with disabilities obviously have a much higher vulnerability or greater vulnerability. The effort to include the aspect of women uh, in the disability issue is also being done by our colleagues and a number of disability organizations. For example, there's SABDA in Jogjakarta and other organizations in Makassar. We have HWDI, we have forum 
of parents with Down syndrome children. And this is mostly run by women who spend their productive time to guide and educate their children. They are potential partners in discussing the role of women uh, with disabilities in developing better policies. And I believe that organizations such as the uh, Association of Women with Disabilities in South Sulawesi, for example, is not just raising women issues, but other issues such as transgender issues, queer issues. And in fact, with the indigenous communities, because by our assessment, uh, the pay, it is the patriarchy attitude that is a challenge for children in, their, in these communities um, in not seeking education. So these association working with indigenous people are opening new horizons, uh, opening up minds and new activists, and they are voicing the rights of people with disability. We have uh, uh, questions for Becky and also Pat Jun. So after uh, finishing all this uh, research, what steps can a government take, do you think, to include uh, the views of people with disability in a way that is respectful of their needs and views? So Becky first. Thank you, Valerina. I wanted to focus on one issue that we haven't mentioned today, which is violence against women with a disability. We know that domestic violence increases in times of disaster, like a pandemic, and also that disabled women are more likely to experience violence, domestic violence. And I think this is an issue that's very hard to talk about. And our study did not provide direct evidence on whether or not there was an increase in violence. But I think it is incumbent upon governments to investigate the issue, to have adequate statistics so that there is knowledge of the extent of the issue, and then to provide two things. One is to provide work on prevention and specifically focusing on prevention for women with disabilities um, and thinking about broader issues around gender equality and equality of people with a disability. And secondly, to provide response in cases where there is violence, not just safe places to go, but healthcare response, uh, reproductive health response, educational response, and legal responses. So I sort of spoke about one, one particular aspect of the answer to your question. Okay, thank you. Uh, June Prouby, uh, you could also answer uh, this question from the audience. Uh, some people with disabilities must depend on their caregiver to voice up their needs. Uh, I myself from Persatuan Orang Tua Anak Autistic Makassar, Ninyoman Anamartanti. Uh, the challenge that we are facing is mostly that the support only for people with physical disabilities, uh, even in the education institutions, still confused on how to implement the curriculum for autistic person, for example, who study in general school, and how to include all the aspects of the disabilities into the policy and system. Can you please answer that question, Pajun? Okay, thank you so much, Palmina. So this is an interesting question. Jadi ini sangat menarik ya. So uh, education is a powerful gun uh, to change the mindset in the community. 
Jadi terkait dengan uh, disabel ini, education. So with regards to disability, education is a powerful tool. It plays a crucial role in changing the perspective of uh, people with disabilities among us. Uh, curriculum is very key and it needs coordination. I believe at the primary school level and at the university level, they have different curriculum. Therefore, the first thing we need to do is that we need to speak at the basic uh, the primary school, uh, middle school and high school levels and higher education levels. There needs to be priority on curriculums that are disabled friendly and not just the curriculum itself, but the physical building. It must be more friendly in University of Hassanuddin itself. We have done so. The transit or the bus shelter, um, the buildings that can be accessed. Uh, we have access for people with disabilities. This is part of translating the curriculum in a real way. And And we have students with disability who are scholarship, specific scholarship recipients to study at the University of Hassanuddin. And with regards to access to uh, university modules, we have uh, language translation, we have study centers that are very relevant for people with disabilities. And what about um, primary school and high school? We need to encourage them. We cannot only work at the university level. We also work with the government uh, and to prioritize primary school and high school. And most importantly is the willingness of the leaders to change this curriculum we and this should not be just lip service we we the fact is that it is difficult for people with disability to register that is a clear example where there is discrimination therefore we can so we've tried to work do this at the university we have to work on from the lowest levels from uh, primary school education middle school and high school from this research, we learned that uh, there are things that needs to be increased in the future, for example, uh, communication method and also uh, provide more inclusive data and finally involving more disabled community in the policy making process in the future. So thank you very much once again to all presenters for explaining us uh, about that aspects. Now I would like to introduce the discussion for today's session. Uh, Ibu Pinkan Umbo, Strategic Partnerships and Management Lead at the Knowledge Sector Initiative. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Hi, so I'm Pinkan from Knowledge Sector Initiative. Uh, just a bit of an introduction. Um, the Knowledge Sector Initiative uh, is a project with a goal to improve the use of evidence in development policy making. The, our program focuses on uh, better quality and more effective communication of policy research, more and better spending on policy research, 
better management, uh, availability, and accessibility of data and information for policy making. Um, basically, we believe that better policy will bring better lives. Yeah. If we can go to the next slide, please, um, Patsy. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So it's interesting throughout the session today, I've been listening to first um, how the creative, uh, creative sector, uh, creative industry sectors were being discussed. Gemma uh, shared through the Real Oz uh, initiative how the film festival allows interaction, yeah? And that interactions uh, experience shifts in due to the pandemic in the way of how interaction are shifted, the teams have shifted, and there are stronger reliance on technology. Um, and then um, the next pre presenter, uh, the previous presenter before that, Wu Anissa and Paoki, showed how a creative economy group were able to survive yeah, in the pandemic through community engagement collaboration and the support of infrastructure yeah um and there was a mention also how uh this knowledge yeah should actually in influence um should actually inform yeah, this knowledge of how people survive how the shifts has happened should inform a an improved schemes to support the community here yeah? and the schemes that does not just rely on government schemes but many sectors yeah and it also requires innovations that allows um more innovations yeah freedom of expressions to to flourish yeah um because in this uh situation of pandemic everybody needs to be given opportunities to voice out and continue their creativity to, 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 to survive, yeah. So similar to this uh, ecosystem of creative economy, our work is related to, in knowledge to policy, we also see it as a com community of itself, yeah. We call it the knowledge sector, yeah. Uh, our knowledge sector consists of uh, many policy actors, and we group them into four types. Yeah. Um, I think it's in the in the second slide. Yeah. Um, uh, our groups includes uh, knowledge users of policy makers who demand and use the evidence. Yeah. And there's also knowledge intermediaries such as policy analysts, civil society, private sector, and the media who generate debates about evidence around policy issues. Yeah? And there is knowledge enablers that include regulatory authorities and private entities that fund and regulate the generation of evidence. And uh, last but not definitely not least is the knowledge producers who supply the evidence. Many of us here, uh, many of the speakers are actually in the knowledge producers, but I think um, each of us, including pair initiatives, are one of these actors um, we discussed today. So our, our support uh, as KSI is to develop more effective development policies through better use of research data and analysis. And we work with research providers and government agencies to strengthen the quality 
and policy relevance of research and how it is used for policymaking. And we also work to improve regulation and practices that support quality research and make use uh, evidence in policy making so it's easier. Um, but specific for the session today, we also want to mention that uh, we our work on gender equality, disability and social inclusion aims to improve the use of evidence on gender, disability and social inclusion issues in development policy making. This is because we see policymakers need better access to research and information on inequality and inclusion and the different impacts that policies have on women, persons with disability and socially excluded groups. Yeah. So if we look at the third slides of my presentations, yeah, um, we, I, we, this is examples of how our supports are able to improve some of the policies yeah, in Indonesia. So our focus on, we call it GETSI, yeah, Gender Equity, Disability and Social Inclusion Strategy, are focusing on three areas, basically. We try to improve consideration of GETSI issues in policy research and analysis. We strengthen networks between research institutions working on GETSI issues and more government of Indonesian knowledge sector related policies to become more sensitive to GETSI. So um, I guess to to align with the second set of the presentations today, uh, I want to show you some examples from one of our partners here, Adrian. Yeah, um, Adrian is Australia Indonesia Disability Research and Advocacy Network, who, in responding to COVID nineteen pandemic, used their findings through survey and research yeah, uh, to develop two guidelines. Yeah, uh, they develop online learning guidelines for students with physical disabilities and online learning guidelines for blind students. Um, and they, Paisak uh, um, is correct here. Yeah. Um, it requires, um, research is one way to respond to, to issues, uh, social issues, yeah. But then you need to bring this evidence and these recommendations to be further advocated, yeah. And so that's what Adrian also did through uh, engagement with policymakers and disability, the, the communities, disability communities, and many uh, activists in the education, they they managed to inform the Ministry of Education and Culture at that time. Um, so the guidelines were officially taken and taken up and published uh, in the ministry website in July 2020. Uh, another example is with our partner Smeru. So Smeru research is on teaching and learning inequalities in times of COVID-19. Resulted in, and this research resulted in several recommendations, yeah, including a diagnostic uh, assessment to mitigate a decline in students' learning. Um, this requires a change of curriculum to be simplified. And through their research and advocacy mm -hmm. efforts, they, they engage with a number of working groups, education working groups. They also work with uh, other research institutes and advocacy institutes yeah, to bring these um, recommendations up to the policymakers. And they, it was then taken up by the Ministry of Education and Culture. And it was included in the guidance of curriculum implementations during special times. Yeah? So there is a Minister Regulations number 719 in 2020. So 
what do we learn uh, from this? Yeah. So um, we, in in our way of working, we encourage uh, our partners to produce policy research that aim to improve the status of women, people with disability, and socially excluded communities, and supported our partners to mainstream the GETSI approach yeah, in their research and advocacy activities. And it it's, can be seen clearly in what how pa, Bubeki and Pawidodo shared today, how you, your research have included the voice of people with disabilities. Yeah? And it's hard. Uh, it requires um, um, design that already includes them. It requires efforts to include um, and methodologies yeah, and other strategies to include the, the people with disabilities to be part of the research, not just the subject of the research. Yeah? And so we have criteria of GETSI sensitive research in our program. Uh, we say research needs to seek to provide recommendations that influence improvement of the GETSI community. Yeah? But the, the issues needs to be identified and clearly addressed in the research design, conduct, and analysis. We also require peer review process in the design and the report um, to consider whether uh, the, the issue of gender equity, people with disabilities, and social exclusion people were adequately addressed in, in the research. And then there are involvement of the communities at every stage of the research. So that's include the design, conduct, and analysis yeah, uh, of how the research were undertaken. So it just, uh, for us, it shows that in ensuring um, inclusion empowerment of all communities is key to, it's key to have a, both a combined mainstream and targeted strategies, yeah. A combined approach will allow the concerns and experience of women, persons with disabilities and socially excluded communities to becoming an integral dimension of knowledge to policy process. Uh, that way, the marginalized community will benefit equally and inequality is not resulted from policymaking decisions. Yeah? Um, and then addressing the structural and dynamic consequences of interaction between multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination requires intersectional approach in research and advocacy. This includes taking into account uh, all conditions that can create a substantively distinct life experience for women, the marginalized community, and persons with disabilities based on factors such as sex, age, gender identity, religion, race, ethnicity, class, and other grounds. Yeah. So, so thanks to for for KSI to be invited uh, by pair. Yeah. In this uh, in, in this event. Yeah. For us, pair uh, partnership for Australian Indonesia research in, initiative efforts in advancing linkages of research and in improving impact of research are crucial here yeah, in facilitating the journey of knowledge um, of multidiscipline. So this morning we talked about creative economy discipline, and then let's talk about education. Yeah, through uh, the perspective of people with disabilities, yeah? but all this multidiscipline knowledge 
were then um, in, were able to interact with the knowledge ecosystem. And then it allows to have a closer, or hopefully closer, link uh, to influencing policies. So, uh, so thank you. Thank you for this initiative and thank you for inviting us. Thank you, uh, Ibu Pinkanumbo from KSI. I would now like to invite Bronwyn Robbins, Consul General in Makassar for the Australian government to make the closing remarks. Good afternoon and salamat siang. It's my pleasure to deliver closing remarks for day two of the second PEAR annual summit. For those of you whom I've not met before, my name is Bronwyn Robbins and I'm Australia's Consul General in Makassar. My office leads Australia's engagement with 11 provinces in Eastern Indonesia, including South Sulawesi, which has been the primary research focus location for the PEAR program. It's been wonderful today to hear from researchers and practitioners working on protecting society in Indonesia during the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you to all of you for your excellent presentations and lively discussion. This year's PEAR's summit theme of improving healthcare, protecting society and economic recovery aligns very well with the Australian government's COVID-19 Partnerships for Recovery framework in Indonesia, which focuses on health security, stability and economic recovery. As we've heard today, a thriving and cohesive society is key to economic and social stability. The COVID-19 pandemic has put a strain on individuals and societies across the globe, and Indonesia has been no exception. The pandemic has disrupted so many aspects of our life, and we've seen the disproportionate impact the pandemic has had on women and girls, on people with disability, and on people living in extreme poverty. As good friends and close neighbours and effective partners, Australia and Indonesia are working together to respond to and recover from COVID-19, with a focus on protecting the most vulnerable groups in society. The strong partnership between Australia and Indonesia enabled the rapid pivot of our development program in the early days of the pandemic to support Indonesia's immediate health, humanitarian and economic priorities. This year, Australia is sharing 10 million AstraZeneca doses with Indonesia and is providing support for the procurement of an additional 10 million AstraZeneca doses. Our support has also extended to provision of crucial health equipment, including ventilators, oxygen concentrators, and has improved rapid testing capacity, helped maintain existing health services, and assisted with emergency medical facilities, particularly during the peak of the COVID-19 crisis. And we have enhanced trade and investment opportunities for Australian and Indonesian businesses under the Indonesia-Australia Economic Cooperation Program, or EICEPA, to support mutual economic recovery. I'm proud of the contribution PEAR is making to support COVID-19 response and recovery throughout Indonesia. PEAR's research, as well as the conversations during this annual summit, play a pivotal role in prompting us all to reflect on lessons learned during the pandemic. How can we improve our systems and prepare ourselves better for the next crisis? 
Pair's model of bringing together researchers from Australia and Indonesia has shown what can be achieved when we work together and share our knowledge. The speakers we have heard from today have provided an outstanding contribution to our understanding of the impact of COVID-19 on Indonesian society, particularly on young people in Indonesia's creative sector and on people with disability. As we're all well aware, Indonesia is known for its rich cultural and creative sectors, which make a significant contribution to the national economy. Indonesia's creative economy generates 7% of Indonesia's national GDP and employs 18% of young Indonesians. But as we've heard today, the sector has been hit hard by COVID-19. Artists, dancers, musicians and photographers have been unable to perform publicly due to health regulations. I feel a lot of sympathy for Indonesia's young creative artists who have struggled during these difficult times. However, I've also felt very encouraged by today's session, including hearing the stories of young people's resilience and innovation in adapting their lives and livelihoods to the new normal. I thank Dr. Anissa Beta, Dr. Oki Rahadianto Sutopo, and Dr. Gemma Purdy and their teams for bringing all these stories to light and for their recommendations on strengthening networks and support for young creative workers. Supporting and empowering people with disability is one of Australia's key priorities in our development program, including through PEAR. We want to ensure that Indonesia's economic recovery is sustainable, is inclusive, and that means ensuring the needs of people with disability are taken into account. Up to 80% of Indonesia's population living with disability lost income during the COVID-19 pandemic, and many more have struggled with access to learning, basic services and health information. For example, many of the virtual platforms that have enabled a large number of us to keep accessing goods and services during the pandemic can be very difficult to use for people who are vision or hearing impaired. Thank you to Associate Professor Becky Batagol, Dr. Mohamed Junaid, Dr. Ishak Salim and their teams for highlighting the experiences of people with disability in Indonesia during the pandemic. I'm really glad that your research has given a voice to people whose perceptions are often overlooked. As today's session highlighted, it's crucial that members of the disability community are included in the planning, the implementation and the evaluation of strategies during a crisis. Tomorrow, the 3rd of December, is the International Day of People with Disability. While this day plays an important role once a year in promoting awareness, understanding and acceptance of people with disability amongst the broader community, today's presentation has reminded us as policymakers and researchers of the importance of considering the needs of people with disability at all times and especially during a crisis. I look forward to seeing the continued contribution of PEAR's excellent research findings, analysis and recommendations to support evidence-based policymaking in Indonesia, particularly in response to challenges posed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you. Thank you, Council General Pranwin Robbins for the closing remarks. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to thank everyone for joining us today and to the panel for their great contributions. Don't forget that we have two more panel discussions and remarks next Tuesday, 
7th of December, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on Indonesia's tourism industry and workers, and a method for making the impossible decision of health versus economy. Today's webinar will be available on demand as soon as available. You can find the recordings and much more on FAIR website. And there is a short survey at the close of this webinar, which we hope you can complete. A big thank you to Inasli, Indonesia Sign Language Interpreters, and our audio translators, Lingua, for their excellent efforts today. And finally, I'm Valina Daniel. Thank you and goodbye.